a baby changes everything, and that's been the testimony of people, you know, and parents uh, forever. It, it, the baby can't be ignored. Uh, it, it will absolutely turn your world upside down. And, and that was never more true than on the first Christmas when Jesus Christ came into the world. He not only uh, changed the lives of his parents and his immediate family, but he changed the world. And we're going to look at that and continue to look at that over the next, uh, this today and on Christmas Eve. I want you to turn once again to the first chapter of Luke. And we're in a very famous passage of scripture. This is Mary's song, and it begins with verse 46 through verse 55. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers." Now, this is, a, this is a very famous passage, and as many of you know, it's, it's referred to often as the Magnificat. You know, those of you like me from South Carolina, like a Magnificat, what? Didn't, is that something you can hunt? Uh, Mary's, Mary's song is called the Magnificat because, uh, as those of you might remember in your world history, the, the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin by a guy named Jerome in 384, and this became the authoritative version of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Latin translation, Mary's song begins uh, with these words, Magnificat anima mia dominum. Did I get that right? Yeah. So Magnificat is just uh, magnify, magnify. And that's what this uh, song has been referred to for many, many, many uh, years. It's Magnificat. Obviously, J.S. Bach, uh, those of you who are classic music lovers will remember that he composed a great piece called Magnificat in honor of Mary's song in 1723. Now, those of you who are used to reading history as prose might kind of stumble when you get to the fact you're reading through Luke 1 and it's just kind of good history and telling you how this all came about. And suddenly, you have Mary's song introduced into, into the text here. But it would not be unusual at all for Mary uh, to write a song um, or Zechariah. In fact, there are two songs in the, the first chapter of uh, Luke here, Mary's song and then Zechariah's song. I don't think they call that the Zechariah cat. It's just Zechariah's song. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of songs in the Bible. Many of you are familiar with the fact that the book of Psalms is a collection of songs. There's 150 songs there, but there's songs all over the Bible. It's not unusual for people to want to write a song about their encounter with the risen Lord. Uh, their love of God. In fact, there are more songs written about the Lord than any subject ever. And so, then and now, people still write songs when they've had this encounter with God. There's a power, isn't there, in a song that sometimes uh, just transcends the ability of words. I mean, think about John Newton. John Newton was once a, a slave trader. He had this incredible conversion experience, and he could have written books and books about it, but what did he write? Amazing Grace, and that one song has had a greater impact than probably any number of books. And so, let's look at Mary's song for a minute. The first verse really sums up kind of the whole point of Mary's song, and that is that the Lord is to be glorified, magnified, because the news of this baby Jesus being born 
is a cause for a celebration. Because Jesus is coming, Mary knows that God has been faithful to fulfill his promise. God promised the Messiah, and now the Messiah is here and is within her womb. Now, when you start reading Mary's song, you'll notice something. And then Mary talks about what is coming, and that is the, the coming of Christ and his reign and his impact. She talks about it as though it's already happened. Now, this isn't because she's writing past tense. It's because this was a device in ancient poetry and songwriting. And that is that you would talk about something that you anticipated as though it had already happened. And it was a sign, uh, a symbol of your confidence in the Lord and his strength and ability. So that's the way she writes. And she writes in a way that clearly says, this baby is going to change everything. Listen to some of these verses. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Did you hear how this baby is going to change everything? He's going to turn the world upside down. He will reverse the status quo. Those who have money, power, and position will no longer be looked upon with great favor and admiration. Instead, the humble will be exalted, and the hungry will be the recipients of all that is good. Now, we have to ask ourselves, is this song of Mary, is it true? It was written some 2,000 years ago. The Gospel of Luke was in circulation 30 to 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So Mary couldn't possibly have, you know, this historical perspective that we have now. So let's reflect upon a little bit what Mary confidently sang about. First of all, Mary said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. This is a 13, 14-year-old girl writing this. How could she know? But would anybody argue that Mary is a pretty well-known person? Does, is there anybody here who didn't know about Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary? Do you know that for centuries, the name Mary or a derivative of Mary based upon the uh, the, the language of any given country, obviously has been the most popular woman's name ever. Mary is revered in churches all over the world, and p- even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ know who Mary was. It's a phenomenal prediction or prophecy, and obviously it has come true. Next, Mary states that God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Is that accurate? I think it is. What does it mean to fear God? It means to approach God with honor and awe and reverence. So can those who honor God with awe and reverence receive God's mercy? Yes. And what is the mercy of God? It is Christ crucified. It is the lamb that was slain on our behalf. And there is no merit, no morality, no virtue necessary to receive God's mercy through the cross. One need only call upon the name of the Lord with awe and reverence to receive and be transformed by God's infinite grace in Christ. She says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Yes or no? I would say yes. People all over the world know the stories of Jesus calming the sea, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding the 5,000, healing the lame and making the blind to see. And of course, obviously, the greatest mighty act has been his resurrection from the dead. Of course, God continues to accomplish amazing feats with his arm, which is what? The church, the body of Christ. 
More aid is provided, more hospitals are built, more food is distributed, more schools are started, more orphans are cared for in the name of Jesus Christ than by any combination of governments or other organizations. She says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Remember those Pharisees in the Bible? Remember how they held power and position, and oftentimes they tried to test Christ. Oftentimes they had these, these uh, incredible attitudes of condemnation or condescension towards Jesus. And even within the text, many times, the, the writers of the gospel said, and Jesus knew what they were thinking in their inmost thoughts. But Christ frustrated these Pharisees. He frustrated them with his teaching, with the way he lived his life, and of course he frustrated them and proved them wrong upon his resurrection. And make no mistake, Christ continues to scatter the proud in their inmost thinking. Now who am I talking about? Well, for one thing, I'm talking about uh, something that's fairly trendy in our country right now, and it's, it's this group called the New Atheists. I don't know if you've kept up with this, but these guys have written a number of books, people like Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Victor Stinger, and Christopher Hitchens. And, you know, for whatever reason, these books are incredibly hot tickets. A lot of them have published books within the last five to six years, and they stay on the best-selling list for 50 weeks. People are, are really gobbling up this new atheism. But friends, listen, any student of history, any student of philosophy, any person who has any sincere desire to understand truth, you can't just blow away religions. You have to deal with the person who is Jesus Christ. And to the fault of these self-proclaimed intellectuals, they don't really want to do this. They don't want to deal with Jesus. They deal with religion. But you have to deal with Jesus Christ if you're any kind of a thinker, a philosopher, or a historian. And there's really only three options when you come to who this Jesus Christ was. Either one, Jesus was a compulsive liar of the most demonic sort. Two, Jesus was a schizophrenic and lived in some kind of alternative reality, as were all of his followers then and, and all of us now, I guess. Or three, Jesus was actually the incarnate Son of God. He was who he says he was. And there are no other options. Now, countless people over the past 2,000 years have set out to disprove these claims about Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that he was crucified and then resurrected on the third day. But inevitably, the greatest thinkers always come to the same end. If you actually consider the evidence that is readily available without bringing to the evidence a brief, uh, kind of a predisposition, a predetermination that you won't believe in something supernatural, there is only one plausible conclusion, that is that Jesus did not have any of the markings of a liar. He did not have any of the markings of somebody who is schizophrenic or insane, which leaves you with only one option, that Jesus was actually who he says that he was, that he was the Son of God, that he did rise from the dead on the third day. Now, this is the testimony of countless people, and many of them giants in the intellectual history um, of intellectuals. <laughs> Obviously, that's not me. Uh, <laughs> C.S. Lewis uh, was an Oxford professor who he literally set out, he, come on a, he just committed his whole life, you know, at, at a young age to disprove this Christian myth. And at the age of 30, he just crashed against the rocks of Jesus Christ. Much to his chagrin, he had to confess 
that Jesus Christ was Lord because that's what the evidence pointed to. Many of you uh, have heard of a man named Josh McDowell. Uh, I met Josh uh, about a year ago, delightful guy. Josh spent 700 hours trying to disprove the Christian myth. And he too crashed upon the rocks of evidence because all the evidence, if you actually look at the evidence, points to one conclusion, that Jesus Christ was actually who he said he was. And of course, Josh went on to write a book called More Than a Carpenter. He recently re-released that book. Uh, He and his son worked together on that. But in this book, there are so many testimonies of people all over the world, many of whom are just brilliant, who have come to these same conclusions. Uh, He he references a lot of famous lawyers, and there's a couple, I'm sure you'll recognize all these names, but Simon Greenleaf, who served as the royal professor of law at Harvard, Sir Lionel Lucu, who is considered the greatest litigator ever, who managed to achieve 245 consecutive murder acquittals, and Frank Morrison, another British lawyer, highly esteemed, who set out to refute the evidence of the resurrection. And all three of these came to the same conclusion, as did many, many others. And Luku really did the best job of articulating it. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This is a man who had 245 consecutive murder acquittals. He's, he's no dummy. Brooke Foss Westcott, who's a professor at Cambridge University, says it this way, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Let me translate that for you. In other words, the only way that you can look at the historical evidence and conclude that Christ is not the risen Son of God is to make up in your mind, before you ever approach the evidence, you just have to make up your mind. Evidence doesn't matter. I've already decided that there is no such thing as supernatural. There is no God because I've never seen a God, because I haven't seen a God, there is no God. That's the only way that you can actually come to the facts, to the evidence, and then make a conclusion other than Christ actually did rise from the dead and he was the son of God. That's what he's saying. That's not intellectual. That's not even rational to come with those kind of uh, predeterminations when you're trying to discover truth. So people who are proud in their thinking regularly shipwreck upon this one man, the rock, named Jesus Christ. He cannot be ignored, dismissed, or bypassed. And that's what Mary's uh, song foretells. Jesus will scatter the proud. And next, Mary says, he has brought rulers down from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. How many of you could recall even half of the U.S. presidents? If you just raise your hand. Thank you for that boldness. Good good historians out there. A couple of you are in high school. Some of you are in the fifth grade, and we're not smarter than fifth graders. Um, I'm not. So how many of you then, if you could recall, how many of you could list off rulers of the world's greatest empires, like Egypt? Assyria, Rome, the Turkish Empire, Germany, England, France, Russia, China, Japan, you name it. I mean, my point is this. There have been countless number of rulers who held incredible power. They, they were just uh, covered up in, in riches that we can't even fathom. And their influence was massive. So take all of those people that you might can remember 
and, and, and think of them individually and then maybe even take them collectively and just consider this one question. Have any of those rulers individually or collectively had the influence of this one poor Jewish carpenter? A man who only lived for 33 years, a man who never held an office, who never wrote a book, who had no power over anybody, who had no wealth, had no position, had no formal education that we know of. He never traveled more than 70 miles from his hometown. He hung out with the outcasts of his society, people who were often condemned. And then he was executed as a criminal. Has any of the rulers of this world, individually or collectively, had the influence of this one poor Jewish carpenter? There was many wonderful historians, uh, many, maybe many of you are historians, and you'll recognize the name of H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells is one of the most respected historians that we've known, and yet he was not a believer, which makes his testimony even more compelling. This is what he said. I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. He goes on to say, Christ is the most unique person in history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. I find that to be very compelling. This man changes everything. He exalts the humble, and he displaces the rulers. How many of you would recognize somebody that Jesus once recognized, the, the, the widow who gave her last two bits to the temple treasury? Who do you think is more notorious, U.S. presidents or that widow? That widow, by far. Throughout the whole world, people know about that widow. Jesus exalted the humble. How many people would recognize the name of Peter, a rough and tough fisherman who had no status or prestige within his day, and yet he became the cornerstone of the church? Jesus Christ exalts the humble. How many people would recognize a converted Pharisee turned evangelist church planner named the Apostle Paul? He spent most of his life, adult life in prison. Jesus exalts the humble. How many people would recognize Mother Teresa, the humble nun who committed her life and very last breath to serving the perishing in Calcutta, India? Jesus exalts the humble. How many people would remember and honor the brave African-American preacher who had a dream for unity and racial equity in the name of Jesus Christ? Jesus exalts the humble. Now, here's the point of my message. You see, the Bible tells of the birth of Jesus Christ, and of course, that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. And and this, this birth, according to Mary, according to history, has changed everything. He is the central, most dominant, most unique person in all of history. Now, that's information for you, right? Now, compare that to what we started off talking about, and that is the influence of a baby in your family. Remember how we said how that changes everything? It changes your transportation, the way you set up your house. It changes the way you look at your pets. Changes the way that you, you, you slam doors and the way, that you, the way that you talk, right? So here's my question for you. Given that Jesus Christ is the center of history, the most dominant figure in history, 
If I were to look at your life, would I be able to conclude that your life has been impacted by the birth of this baby named Jesus Christ? I mean, I could tell, you know, just by looking at you, if you had a baby in your house right now. You know, one, your eyes would be bloodshot, and you'd be so happy to have a nursery, <laughs> right? And you would, I could tell kind of by what you're driving and the way your house is set up, by the way that you talk. You know, we can tell if there's a baby in your house. But could I tell that you were familiar with the Savior of the world? Would I be able to tell that your life has, had, has been so impacted that you've adjusted your behavior, your language, your space, your time, your resources, your priorities, just as you would if a newborn, new, newborn baby came into your house. Here, here's the point. This is so simple, you'll be able to remember it all the way through lunch. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis once said these words. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now you must ask yourself, is Christianity true? If it's not, we're wasting our time. But if it is, it cannot be moderately true in your life. Just as a newborn baby does not have a moderate change in in your life, it changes everything. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is the Savior of the world and the resurrection did actually happen and then thus consequently the Bible is actually true, that should change everything in your life. And the change I'm talking about is more than a minivan. It's a transformation. In a few days we'll gather together for Christmas Eve and and I'll conclude this series by by really helping to, to kind of pull back the curtain and help you to see the amazing degree of change that Christ ushered into the world and what that looks like in my life and yours. It's a whole new world. It's a world like Mary described. It's a world where the first are the last and the last are the first. We're a world where we welcome the poor and the outcast. A world where we forgive. A world where we, we pray for our enemies and we even love our enemies. It's a world where we learn to trust God no matter the circumstances. It's a world where we exercise generosity. It's a world where we live to give it away. And this whole world depends upon this one man who was born as a baby to Mary and Joseph. Now, if you've never met this man, Jesus, I invite you to simply open your Bible and read about the center of history, the most dominant character in history, the most unique person in history, according to H.G. Wells. He is our Savior. He is Christ the Lord. He suffered and died on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins and enjoy eternity with him. And look, he's not dead. All the people in this room are testimony to the fact that he is alive. And listen, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what's happened in your life, Jesus Christ loves you more than you'll ever know. And so I implore you, pray to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior if you have not done so. I I call you to come forward today. At the end of our service, there'll be pastors in the front, those to greet you and pray with you. But just yield to the truth. The evidence is overwhelming. Christmas is coming, and the baby changes everything. Let's pray.
Father, I stand here and bear witness to this group of people, to this church, and to the world that the baby has changed my life. That I would not be a person that has hope for this life if it were not for him. I'm quite certain I would not even exist if it were not for him. And I know that there are many within our church, within our community, in the church universal who have stood up through history and say, the baby has changed my life, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, I pray for even one person who can't say those words this morning because this is, this is it. Everything revolves around this one person, Jesus Christ. And because of his life and his death and his resurrection, we are free. We are forgiven people. But Lord, you've called us to be in relationship with you. And so that requires for us at some point just to fall on our knees and and disown reverence in the fear of the Lord and, and call upon the name of the Lord. And I pray this morning that each and every person within the sound of my voice will yield to the truth that is so woven into their heart that it resonates within them as the Holy Spirit brings conviction. We love you and we thank you for that first Christmas night when hope came into the world. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.